Welcome to episode 27 of Sass Mouth Dame's podcast. Typecasting in Hollywood had bigger implications than the limited roles it offered. It was also a handy mechanism to control contract players and keep them opposed to one another. One of the easiest ways a studio could check a star's power was by threatening to give away a coveted role to someone else. Studios coordinated a cast by types and, and contrasts. For women, that usually meant the brash and the sweet, the dame and the lady, the beauty and the brains, and so forth. MGM's Man Proof from 1938 is a standout because it has three women of the same type from the same lot and the same cast. And the three women were pitted against each other by studio heads. Louis B. Mayer, like many studio heads, invested time and resources to leverage anything he had against his roster of more stars than there are in the heavens. Sometimes it was loaning them money to purchase a home or car. Other times he called upon Eddie Mannix and Howard Strickling to generate good publicity. Or they covered up scandals that would have damaged their image. The usual stuff like extramarital or same-sex affairs, drugs, secret children, and the like. E.J. Fleming draws a clear picture of the seedy underbelly of the MGM publicity machine. In his page-turner, The Fixers, he catalogs the way Mannix and Strickland conducted damage control for MGM's headliners. The more run-of-the-mill tactic, though, had bigwigs used to keep demanding stars in line was to remind them who could replace them at any given production. Over the 18 years Joan Crawford spent in Metro, executives used several other women to cut her down. Jean Harlow, Jeanette McDonald, and Greer Garson were but three women they held over Crawford's head, not to mention the way she had to fight for Norma Shearer's rejects. When Myrna Loy asked for more money or time off on contract negotiations, Mayer threatened to give her roles away to Rosalind Russell. In her memoir, Life is a Banquet, Rosalind Russell was aware of the studio politics at Metro. She wrote, I was no top star. I was in the second echelon. That was the way they ran the lot. I once said I never got a part at Metro unless Myrna Loy turned it down. And while that was meant to be funny, there was a grain of truth to it. They had me as a threat behind Myrna, the same way they had Louise Rayner behind Garbo. Every time Myrna asked for a change in her contract or a raise, the brass could say, never mind, Roz Russell will do the picture. And this system worked very successfully. Roz Russell and Myrna Loy share the same anecdote in their memoirs. They lived close by one another, with Roz at the bottom of the hill where Myrna lived. Myrna Loy recalled her place in the studio pecking order in her memoir, Being and Becoming. She notes that she bonded with Roz during production of Man Proof in 1938. Roz was her exuberant self, lively and full of fun. We became friends during that picture, despite all the studio nonsense about pitting her against me. She lived down the hill from me and gave very entertaining parties, during which she invariably joked about getting my rejects. Those scripts, she'd say, they all have your name scratched out on the cover. You wait until dark, shove them out your house and roll them down the hill to hit my front door. That's the way they're cast. 
Roz wrote, Myrna used to live up a hill from me, and once at a dinner party, I was teasing her about my having gotten all of her rejects. Those scripts, I say, you wait until dark, shove them out of your house, and they'd roll down the hill and hit my front door. That's the way they were cast. Everybody at the table laughed, and then Myrna's voice, reflecting on one of the dogs she'd got stuck with, cut through the hilarity. Well, you must have been out, she said, the night I rolled you Parnell. During an interview included in Conversations with Classic Film Stars, Roz Russell recalled, Years later, in makeup, I was wondering out loud if there was a Roz Russell second stringer. There was a tug on my shoulder, and Ruth Hussey said, Hi, Roz, it's me. Roz for Myrna and Ruth for Roz, like a studio infinity mirror. Sadly, all of Ruth Hussey's scenes were deleted from Man Proof. She was only in the first year of her contract with Metro, so it must have come as a big shock to wind up on the cutting room floor. Even though Metro cut both Ruth Hussey and Rita Johnson from the picture, their names still appear on the opening credits. My guess is that the studio initially attempted a faithful adaptation of Fanny Heaslip Lee's novel, The Four Marys, which was published in 1937. The studio narrowed the competition for Walter Pidgeon down to two women instead of four. In her memoir, Myrna said of the production that it was a relief after the emotional strain of completing Double Wedding with William Powell right after Jean Harlow's untimely tragic death. No doubt Rosalind Russell was mourning her friend Jean Harlow as well, which helped the two women bond on set. Myrna recalled, Man Proof was lighter going. We had a wonderful cast, and I had an unusual part featuring a terrific drunk scene. Everyone said it was anyway. Walter Pidgeon, who played the man between Roz Russell and me, was always a delight. Pidge and I managed to work together once or twice a decade over a 40-year span. And that was the only time I worked with Francho Tone, an, an attractive man whom I never got to know very well, unfortunately. He and Joan Crawford were married at the time, and things weren't going well for them. I remember him sleeping a lot on the set. He was always asleep. This picture is worth your time for so many reasons, despite the dismissive reviews that rate this as fluffy melodrama. In other words, this is a classic woman's picture. Myrna Loy takes some time to come to the realization that the man she loves isn't worthy of her, nor the woman he's married to. Man Proof, such a great title, accounts for one of the few times that Myrna Loy was disagreeable on screen, outside of her exotic roles early in her career. Myrna in her cups is a delight. There's something so refreshing about seeing her not be nice. I wouldn't say there's anything funny about her drunk scenes unless you look at it in a sort of wry, ironic way. She's in her cups because the man she loves married someone else, and for some reason, she plays a bridesmaid in a hideous, infantilized ensemble with a gigantic black bow tied underneath her chin as though she were a little milkmaid off the heather. Myrna is sour grapes before she even has a chance to drown her sorrows. She tells Walter Pidgeon, after he marries Rosalind Russell, that she hopes he'll be very unhappy because anything she ever wishes for never comes true. Acting drunk is a tricky thing. Myrna wisely uses props to enhance how wilted her posture becomes after several glasses of wine. Her hat loses its shape. The bouquet she carries drops nearly to the floor. 
She does this thing where her elbows stick out sideways when she sits, like she's either trying to belly up to the bar or just find some equilibrium and steady herself. She's woozy. It's the small little things that combine for a great effect rather than just becoming loud or overly emotional, like many other actors do when they play drunk. And she never resorts to the hackneyed laughter that dissolves into tears business, like Betty Davis did in Dangerous from 1935. Myrna's character Mimi has a warning for Walter Pigeon's Alan. I'm not a nice girl, Alan. I tried every trick in the book to be the bride, she confesses. Then before her exit, she says as though over a crystal ball, when you come back, I wouldn't have anything to do with a girl like me. I'd keep the seven seas between us and wish it was eight. She bids Rod's Elizabeth farewell before the newlyweds leave on their honeymoon. Gee, you're pretty, she says as she closes the door. But then, to complete the witchy mood, she reaffirms her self-worth when she passes by Alan and says, So am I. Myrna's next scene, as Mimi, plays out in the bright nightclub, which tells us that she doesn't really know any seedy little watering holes to hide away in while she tries to feel sorry for herself. Franchotone enters the club as Jimmy, sent over by request of Myrna's mother, Meg, a best-selling novelist, played by Nana Bryant. He approaches gingerly. Soused, he asks. No, she replies. What you drinkin'? Alone, do you mind? Myrna snaps. She follows that with, I don't like you. Disagreeable Myrna is the best Myrna. I want to flick a lighter and yell, have at it, at the screen. Francho gives a speech that paints him as one of the good guys. He's not there to lecture her, although he does say he doesn't think love is worth suffering for. He kind of compliments her for what she said after the ceremony about never getting what she wished for. You left your calling card, he says, and admits that if he were Alan, he would have run off with Mimi at that moment. Love is something that grows at the highest branch that we try and reach for, he says. Then, like a pal, he settles in for a session to join her in her cups. The grape is there for our reach, Jimmy says. He pours out drinks and tells Mimi, wine is for the victors and not for drowning sorrows, as is so popularly thought. Still, anything touched by the sun has kindness. He invites her to drink to love. Cut to the morning after, before Mimi's mother walks in the room. Her wedding ensemble lies at the foot of the bed on the floor. Her hat is crushed. The wedding bouquet is shredded to floral pulp and the bridesmaid's dress is discarded in a heap like a pile of used Kleenex in a sick room. The bromide that her mother offers to nurse her colossal hangover is advice to get over Alan in the only way possible, lose herself in another man or in work. Mimi must stop loafing and get a job. She does get a job for a newspaper drawing ads, the one where Jimmy works as an illustrator. It's the first time that she smiles in the picture when she shares with him an ad she drew for a furniture company. At first, Jimmy says it looks too big, but then he admits her success. Myrna wears one dress to work that looks like a refitted tuxedo. It's black, but with a white shirt front and a black bow tie. It was designed by Dolly Tree. It screams, dress like the job you want, and it says, I'm a capable working lady with a cute flat. She isn't dismayed to learn of the honeymooner's return because she has a booming career. She turns up at their society party wearing a white dress with smart black stripes around the waist. 
It says she doesn't need to be a bride to wear a great dress. Truthfully, she tells Alan she's over him, and here's where Walter Pidgeon becomes truly awful. It's one thing to marry another woman, all's fair and all that, but now he's decided he wants his wife and Mimi. He wants to make some point about their moving on to friendship, which is as false as Bogart's hairline. Alan toys with both women. He says to Mimi, we'll act exactly as though you are a man. They go to a boxing match. Then they go for drinks in the nightclub where she tried to drown her sorrows. They return to Mimi's flat during the milkman's delivery hour and say goodbye on the stoop. But Franco is asleep in her flat. He told the landlady he was her brother. Mimi says, you must be surprised to find me alone. Are you trying to tell me you're stepping on the same old banana peel, he asks. Rosalind Russell's Elizabeth is no dummy. She's no cardboard cutout shrew either. After a phone conversation with Mimi, Elizabeth tries to take Alan's emotional temperature. This time, she's wearing an enormous, ridiculous bow under her neck, mirroring the one Myrna wore as the disappointed bridesmaid. I guess the style cue calls for women to tie a gigantic bow under their neck when they're insecure about a man. Alan sneaks over to see Mimi and says predictable things like, You're swell. You're so fun. Sure, because she's not his wife. She'll stay out all night doing the things he wants. When Elizabeth arrives at Mimi's flat and sees her husband there looking all cozy, she doesn't turn up the volume. Walter Pigeon just stands there looking at his wife, no greeting of any kind. He just smokes a cigarette. Her speech is soft and even. She directs her speech to Mimi because this is business between women. She confesses that she knew right away on her honeymoon that Alan wasn't in love with her. Women can hide how they feel, she says, but men can't. What she means is that they never had to learn how to conceal their own feelings to make someone else happy. Women learn that as children. She's so reasonable about openly sharing her humiliation that you would have to have ice cubes in your veins to be immune to her plight. Why has she chosen to make such a wretched man her life partner and make him wealthy and powerful to boot? Then she realized he was just a fortune hunter after all, she says. Alan stops listening, gets up, and turns his back throughout Elizabeth's speech. Instead of hating him for being ordinary, I felt sorry for him, she says. As she delivers the speech, she's dressed in a column gown and capelet. She looks so sophisticated, which only elevates the high-tone reaction to the news that her husband is in love with Mimi now. She couldn't have made a bigger heel of him had she nailed a placard on his forehead. When she leaves, Myrna says, there goes a general in any woman's army. Let's jump back to the wedding scene for a moment. I could not let this episode pass without commenting on Rosalind Russell's bridal ensemble. She wears a cellophane wedding veil that looks about 40 feet long. Dolly Tree demonstrates with this look that she can do a hell of a lot more than the sober plaids she crafted for Myrna Lloyd to wear in the Thin Man series. I can point to maybe hundreds of different wedding ensembles and women's pictures that are standouts. The organdy gown with floral buttons that Joan Crawford wears in Love on the Run from 1936 screams garden wedding. It moves like a spring breeze. Ginger Rogers looks like the Madonna in a starry halo when she plays a runaway bride in It Had to Be You from 1947. 
Then there's the gown Jean Tierney wears for the razor's edge that her husband, designer Oleg Cassini, crafted for her. But find me another duchess satin turtleneck gown on screen that has a 40-foot plastic veil. There's nothing else like it on the screen. Forget sweetheart necklines or lace or beading or any other detail that's so last century by comparison. There's no traditional promise in Roz's wedding look. She isn't trying to look demure or innocent or dainty. She's not trying to look sexy either. Nuns probably have more flesh on parade than Roz in this look. Her veil resembles a wimple. Two loops on either side of her head spring out as a tent for the sheer glittering cellophane. One of its primary graces is the ability to transfer light. Rosalind Russell takes her vows with so much light projected on her face from the sheen of satin and cellophane that she appears illuminated by 1,000 bulbs. She's the pinnacle of confident style. You can't take your eyes from her. Judith Brown reports in her book Glamour in Six Dimensions, Modernism and the Radiance of Form, that cellophane was first used to market Cody perfume in Paris in 1924. They tied the bottles and sheets of cellulose, which looked very chic on display. Brown then explains that in the United States, it was first used as a moisture-proof wrapper for Camel cigarettes in 1930. Cellophane became a sensation in modern design from both high and low culture. It was billed as the New Age alchemy, the result of modern chemistry, which sought to impose human ingenuity on the larger world. Engineers architects, fashion designers, and admin on Madison Avenue all agreed upon the utility of cellophane. It's difficult to recognize how important sheets of cellulose were in the 1930s when today we're so inundated with plastics. They've created an environmental disaster. But in the 1930s, cellophane was a hallmark of the streamlined, transparent, mutable design features of an art deco aesthetic. In her book, Judith Brown points out how quickly it was embraced by Hollywood, particularly in musical extravaganzas, such as Dancing Lady with Joan Crawford and Fred Astaire in 1933, Swing Time in 1937 with Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and Broadway Melody from 1940 with Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. Brown argues cellophane delivered a glamorous sheen on screen. The cultural effect was significant. She notes Cole Porter made reference to it in a line from his song, You're the Tops, which was a big hit in 1934. His lyrics have it, you're the National Gallery, you're Garbo's salary, you're cellophane. Brown includes a sketch from Vogue magazine published in 1930, which features a woman wearing a cellophane toque and a simple scarf that covers her hair and ears. Vogue declared cellophane chic and at the height of fashion. Let's add Dolly Tree's bridal look for Roz to the illustrious appearances of cellophane looks on screen. In her memoir, Being and Becoming, Myrna wrote that everyone always asked her why she didn't have Adrian design her wardrobe in the pictures. She said she felt that Dolly Tree was more to her taste, but I think Myrna was canny enough to opt out of competition for Adrian and have Dolly Tree all to herself. I've no doubt that when Jimmy Stewart said there ought to be a law against any man who doesn't want to marry Myrna Loy, he meant it as the highest compliment. But can you think of a worse fate for a talented actor? That she plays someone's wife? Man-proof doesn't get half the praise it deserves. 
I want to see a woman be selfish and act badly on screen. In other words, be human. Myrna must have felt such relief to not have to smile at every time at every little thing that a man does. Sulky, sullen, bitchy, jealous, and drunken Myrna is a revelation. Myrna is raw in this, and we can't have enough of a plot line that tells women they pick the wrong men who are unworthy of them. I'll close this uh, episode with a brief excerpt from Being a Becoming about the time that Myrna stood up to the studio heads in 1935 about the film Escapade. By that time, my contract gave me around $1,500 a week, half of what they paid Bill Powell, and a fraction of what other stars received. And I had to make more pictures than any of them. I wanted what Bill was getting, and that's all. I was his co-star. They already considered us a team with equal responsibilities. $1,500 sounds like a lot of money, but it wasn't compared to what my pictures brought in. I didn't want the moon or anything. I just wanted my fair share of the gravy. When Myron requested these promised adjustments, they refused and cast me in escapade with Bill. That part was all wrong for me, and I fought it. Don't put me in this thing. I'm not that little wistful girl selling flowers on the streets of Vienna. Bill played an artist who finds this waif a terrible script, it seemed to me, which I don't think he took too seriously either. Then Louis B. Mayer got into the act. Myrna, you're like one of my family. If you were my mother, my wife, or my mistress, I couldn't be more sincere. What a wonderful juxtaposition. My mother, my wife, or my mistress? I knew damn well he just wanted to coax me into escapade. But it was the first time he gave me that song and dance, and it beguiled me. I said, all right, I'll do it. A week or so into shooting, my darling hairdresser, Eleanor, whom I had for years, arrived in a panic. You know what they made me do last night? I had to make a test with that new Austrian girl, Louise Rayner, and she played your part. I said, oh, well, did you? Did you really? Laughing to comfort her, but thinking, well, that's great for me. I had returned to the set and resumed working, doing what I was supposed to do, when Bernie Hyman, one of Mayer's henchmen, appeared. He motioned for me to come over. You want to take a walk? So we took a walk, and he told me they were pulling me out of escapade, while Bob Leonard, the director, just stood there with the guts of a snail. Bernie took me up to see Eddie Mannix, the studio manager, a professional Irishman who kept a bunch of shillelaghs outside of his office. Whenever I had a beef, I used to grab one. So I picked up a shillelagh and stormed in. Oh, God, Eddie groaned. Here she comes. Now listen, Kitty hedged. We made a mistake. You certainly have. You don't know what a mistake you've made. I liked Eddie. We were friends, but this infuriated me. I told you not to put me in the damn thing in the first place, and after I go through all the preliminaries, you put some new girl into it. Well, we were wrong, but now you're, we'll just say you're sick and you're going to Palm Springs for a rest. No, you're not going to say anything of the kind. I'm not sick and I'm not going to Palm Springs, and I walked out. We conspired that evening at dinner. Arthur, Myron, and I. You go to the studio in the morning, Myron said, and do everything you usually do. Makeup, costume, as if you're going to play the part. You may even have to walk onto the set. I don't know, but I think they'll stop you before that. The point is, don't leave that studio without a written release from the picture. I reported the next morning and went through the motions. She was there, Rainer, all ready to start work, and here I was. The situation was none of her doing, of course, but she looked as if it were, furtive and frightened. Our strategy was working. 
I called Benny Tao's office. Well, I'm here. You're what? I'm in the studio ready for work. Benny had always been my champion at the studio, but this really put him in a spot. I'm not going to leave without a release from Escapade, and I don't want any nonsense. I'm not sick, and nobody's going to say that I'm sick. Boy, they sent that piece of paper and nothing flat. I phoned Meyer and triumphantly, I got it. He was so shrewd, this man. He knew what they were up to, and he knew how to handle them. They were going to make a test case out of me, you see, for trying to get more money. Perhaps they needed another Powell Loy picture right away and really did think Escapade was a good idea, but I think they wanted to humiliate me. Well, they weren't getting away with it. I wasn't stepping down. I had a chip on my shoulder, believe me, and all you had to do was look as if you were going to knock it off. Thanks very much for listening. Join me next time for episode 28 when I talk about Marion Davies in Page Miss Glory from 1935. Thanks very much. I got an island in the Pacific.